Okay, uh, this evening's reading is from uh, Matthew 6, starting at verse 19 and going through to uh, verse 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your, eyes, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. If it's not life more than food and the body more than clothes, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall I eat? Or what shall I drink? Or what shall I wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of kingdom, sorry, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thanks, John. I'd like to welcome you all, uh, add my welcome this evening. My name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Sorrow Revival, and uh, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of Jesus today, this countercultural message, that he encourages us to place the kingdom of heaven before even our temporal security. Heavenly Father, I pray that we'd all be listeners this evening, that we'd all listen to Jesus' words, and that we consider them and consider if we will actually be prepared to put them into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a lot of people have been talking to me lately about how the world is changing, seems to be changing really quickly. There's lots of different movements raging on around the world and different things are happening. Uh, I can definitely say that the world that I grew up in seems a long way away, probably because the dinosaurs passed away a long time ago. Uh, electricity also came along in my lifetime and I also see it, saw man flight. No, I'm just exaggerating. But I am a little bit older. But even if you're not as old as me, you'd have to say the world is changing. Would you agree? Yeah, lots of things are happening. Yeah. Some things are good, like SpaceX blowing up rockets. How good was that? Probably the best thing I've seen all year. Been waiting 18 months for that. But there's another thing coming out that's really good that's new at the moment and it's a movie. And Joel alluded to it at the beginning uh, of the announcements there about the fact that Lou and me and the boys and anyone else who wants to come along, we're going to see a movie called The Jesus Revolution. 
Now, the Jesus, movie, the Jesus movie, The Jesus Revolution, isn't about the life of Jesus. It's actually about something that happened in 1971. And to give you a bit of an idea of how important what happened in what's depicted in the movie was, I want to say two things. The first thing is, you know when people at parties say, if you could go back in time to any time, where would you go? Have you got a thought where you'd go? I'd go back to 1969. But that's weird, because I was born in 1968. But I'd go back as a full-grown young adult and I'd participate in the Jesus movement and I'd go along to California, me and Jeff, we'd get in our car, we'd drive from San Diego up to one of the Jesus rallies in LA, there we'd be with our long hair and our lovely wives, dressed like young hippies, flashing a one-way. Stuart, what on earth are you talking about? Why would you want to go and do that? Well, let me tell you. I had two magazines here. Both of these magazines are quite precious to Louise and I, and they're both of them given to us by Lauren and Matt, who are very, very dear friends of ours. This is Time magazine cover from 1966, two years before I was born. You see that? And the, the magazine is talking about the fact that in the opinion of the editors, God is dead in America. Well, that was a long time ago. God's still alive. So obviously that's a little bit premature to uh, call God's death back then. However, what this article's looking at is in 1966, I've got a little bit of a, a blurb on it here that I want to read to you. 1966, the world was changing so significantly that many people started to think, surely no young people are ever going to go to church ever again. Now, I don't know if you know much about the 1960s, but it was also a great time of change. If you think now is a great time of change, go back to the 1960s. It was absolutely incredible. Every movement that we have today began in the 1960s. And it was such a time of change that young people were leaving the churches in droves. For example, at Guymer Anglican Church in the 1950s, Guymer Anglican Church is just down the road here, uh, in the 1950s, they had 400 children going to their, their kids' church on a Sunday morning. 400. Now, I've been in their halls. I don't know how they fit them all in. They didn't do any advertising. They didn't do any scripture in school. They just opened the doors and 400 kids used to rock up. That, because that's because 90% of Australians considered themselves church-going and they used to go to church every week. Didn't matter how boring it was. Didn't matter if they liked it or not. It's just what you did. But in the 1960s, something happened that broke that. So that in the 1970s, when I was growing up in Sunday school, there was only 100 kids in the Sunday school. And at one point in the 1990s, late 1990s, well, 2000s actually, there was only three kids going to Sunday school at Guymer Anglican Church. Because culturally, no longer is Christianity at the heart of our culture because of what happened in the 1960s. Civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the feminist movement... Uh, I could go on, all the different movements that have shaped the world. And because of that, the little blurb that I've got here says that the article attempts to capture the nation's shifting theological mood. Now, it's talking about America, but it's happening right across the world. Uh, that there's a growing complacence about faith. And there's a metaphysical confusion. Now, I didn't know, don't even know what that means, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but here's the point I want to raise. The cover, this one, inspired countless angry sermons and 3,421 angry letters to the editor. How dare you say God is dead? People got angry. That's one response to this. And as Christians, we're probably familiar with the angry Christian response. We've seen angry Christians. Hands up if you've seen an angry Christian before. 
Okay, yep. Hands up if you're brave enough to say you've been an angry Christian once or twice. That is one response to it, but here's the other response to it. The reason that I'd like to get into a time machine and go back to 1969 is because I'm getting tingles. This is the actual magazine from 1971, Time Magazine cover. Five years later, how's Jesus? How is Jesus? It's almost like Time Magazine said, you're dead. And he's like, oh, right, really? Um, okay, cool. Time to go on a drive. Let's go on a roadshow. Let's uh, have a revival. I could just imagine me and Jeff going along to one of the 800 communes in America, the Jesus communes, not just a hippie commune, Jesus communes, coffee houses, listening to people like Larry Norman and Keith Green and second chapter of Acts. I'm getting tingles. None of this means anything to you guys, most of you. <laughs> and I don't care, because I have the 1971 Time magazine article that says there was a Jesus revolution in 1971, and do you know what? There wasn't any leader of it. Now, the movie tomorrow night is actually celebrating that because it was such a phenomena that you could travel from New York to San Francisco in 1971 and not have to pay any board because so many young people had got into Jesus, they'd started communes all across America and they were actually getting really excited about being into Jesus. They didn't hold anything back. They were going to tell America what Jesus means to them and that spread to Australia. Australia had a commune called the House of the Gentle Bunyip. The House of the Purple Door. I kid you not. Jeff and I wouldn't have even had to drive all the way to San Francisco to go and check out this Jesus movement because it was here in Australia. There was another one called Christian Surfers. Have you heard of them? They're a Jesus movement group. It was young people across the world who went, we're not going to wait for the old people to tell us how to change the world, we're going to change it. And we're going to use rock and roll music to change the world. I'm getting goosebumps again. Because it did. They actually reckoned that so many people became Christians in 1971 that even the secular authorities were actually completely surprised. There's a photo of a young lady with her Jesus is Lord t-shirt on doing a one-way. That came from an artist called Larry Norman. He was one of the fathers of Jesus Rock. And he was playing a concert. When he finished the concert, everyone clapped him and said, that was a rad concert, Larry. There he is, look at him. What a handsome dude. You can just imagine me and Jeff behind him, eh? <laughs> just walking along going, yeah, what's going on in the world? Jeff would go, Stewie, do you want to go to the house of the gentle bunyip tonight? I'm like, yeah, man, let's go and sing Jesus songs. What kind of Jesus songs are we going to sing, Stu? I said, and I'd say, how about The Outlaw by Larry Norman? Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land. I've not only got goosebumps, I'm going to start crying, I don't care. With a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done, but they said it must be something bad that kept him on the run. People today think Jesus is bad again, don't they? Some people are saying Jesus is bad, so Larry goes on. Some say he was a poet, that he'd stand upon a hill, that his voice would calm an angry crowd or make the waves stand still, that he spoke in many parables that few could understand, but people sat for hours just to listen to this man. So some people today also say, well, he's a good teacher, but that's about it. 
Some people might not be super angry at him and think he's an outlaw, but he, they think he might be a teacher. Other people think he's some kind of sorcerer. Verse 3, some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk on the water, he could make the blind man see, he could conjure wine at weddings and do tricks with fish and bread. He talked about being born again and raised people from the dead. Some say he was a politician who spoke of being free. He was followed by the masses on the shore of Galilee. They're happy tears. He spoke out against corruption and he bowed to no decree. And they feared his strength and power, so they nailed him to a tree. This is the best bit. <laughs> I'm crying already. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, that he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin. And that's who I believe he was. Because <laughs> that's what I believe. And I think we should get ready, because it's time for us to leave. That's why I want to get back in a time machine and go back to 1971, 1969, all those times. Because people were so confident that the message about Jesus had power to change people's lives. And hippies in their thousands came down to the shores of California's beaches to be baptised. The movie's about that. So what relevance has that got for us today, though? It's great that there was a big revival back in the 70s. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young people became Christians in the Jesus movement. But the reason I want to talk about it tonight is that Soul Revival was born in this counterculture too, back in 1991. Because when we started Soul Revival back in 1991 as a youth group, we found it pretty hard to get anybody excited about Jesus. The Jesus movement was already 20 years ago. And young people had become very materialistic. Teenagers were leaving the churches in droves when we were growing up, when we were young, as Gen Xers. Out of the 40 young people that were in my youth group, all of them left the church at my Gaim Ranglican Church youth group. So one night I was standing up at church, at Gaim Ranglican Church, with 80 people, none of them in their 20s, and I was the only 20-year-old in the service. And I stood there praying and I said, God, I think I might go to Gaimia Baptist next week. Is that okay if I go to Gaimia Baptist Church? Because they've got more young people my age. Would you be cool with that? And then I opened my eyes and I looked over to the right and there was a big, long pew full of scruffy surfer teenagers who were all 16, 17. One of the blokes whose name was Tim Borland. Some of you know that dude. And they were all passing notes because it was before iPhones when you could do that. Is there something you need to tell me or you're just walking? That's your baby, cool, makes sense. And I remember thinking to myself, if I go and leave this church, what's going to happen to them? But I'm by myself, what can I do? I can't do anything. But I had this flush of conviction, and I've told you guys this before. The flush of conviction came from Larry Norman. Because right back in the early 80s, when I was a youth, one of my youth ministers gave me a record by Larry Norman and he said, this is really daggy and old and you won't get the style of music because you're into the Cure and Joy Division. This is a guy who's a hippie from the 1970s, but listen to this, it'll change your life. And I put that record on repeat right through the 1980s. Listen to it almost every day. And it just became such an exciting idea in my mind that maybe the Jesus movement might happen again one day. And while I was standing at Guy Anglican Church by myself, I thought to myself, I wonder if maybe if I stay here and commit myself to being here, maybe other people might too. And so I had this conviction, a flush of conviction. I said to God, God, I'm going to stay at Guy Anglican Church until I'm asked to leave. 
Amen. I'd just gone from, God, I'm going to go to Gaimi Baptist Church to look for some more people my age because I don't have any friends, to promise and I'll stay at this church for the rest of my life. I don't know where it came from. But I know where it came from because Christianity is countercultural. That moment was very, very small and incidental example of countercultural Christianity. Countercultural Christianity is to follow Jesus no matter what. The Jesus movement was countercultural because unlike the rest of the people their generation, they weren't trying to come up with a message that fitted to the current zeitgeist. In fact, Larry Norman one day came on stage and he said, I'm too Christian for my generation and I'm too political for the church. No one accepts me. I'm just, no one's got me. And he went on stage one night and he got the microphone and he started singing one of the other songs that he used to sing and he, used, and he started singing this song. And I apologise, it's a, a little bit pointed, but he goes, um, um, drinking whiskey from a paper cup, you drown your sorrows till you can't stand up, broken needle in your purple vein. Uh, what's the rest of it? Your da-da-da-da-da. Should have checked that before tonight's sermon. Anyway, also punchy verse line straight after that but this is the big thing he said why don't you look into Jesus he's got the answer and just as he sang that the minister came across this because he was talking about drug abuse and alcohol and he went on to talk about all sorts of other stuff in his song but two or three verses in the minister came across the stage took the microphone off him and said thanks Mr Norman you must be really busy uh you might want to maybe stay for a biscuit after church so poor old Larry and his Jesus movement friends were too political and too honest, I suppose, and transparent for the church at the time, but they were also weren't fitting into their culture either. They were countercultural because that's just what Jesus is. Jesus is countercultural. And Soul Revival started countercultural because we had no other choice. Because we couldn't be cool. We tried really hard to be cool, but no one was cool. I was driving home from uni one day and I listened to Triple J and Triple J was saying, how's those, some one of the announcers on Triple J, you know, the radio station Triple J, and one of the announcers was saying, how's those Christians in their youth groups, hey, how they play those daggy youth groups games? It's almost like they're looking for an opportunity to touch each other because they're not allowed to. And I remember feeling so sad that I pulled over at the side of the road and I pulled my Triple J sticker off the back of my car and I chucked it in the gutter and I felt lonely. Because I'm young and I need to be part of the youth. But now I've just had the, 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 the mouthpiece for the youth in Sydney pay out my Jesus and our churches. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. Sorry. And I, I wonder, actually, even though I wasn't thinking of Larry when I did that, I wonder if Larry actually helped me. Well, we, we started just saying, instead of trying to be cool Christians, let's just be Christian. Let's be countercultural. And what I think being countercultural is, is to be prepared to be different to everybody else to prepare to be alone and to say to Jesus, you're enough, Jesus, I don't need anything else. And it's almost like when you come to that point where you say, I'm prepared to just follow you, Jesus, even if I don't have anybody else, that that's when he blesses you with all the, everybody else. Do you know, after that night at church, probably five years later, we had at Soul Revival Church probably 500 young people at Soul Revival Church. Did I do something funny? No, I'm getting laughed at, I'm not sure why. Um, we had 500 young people, not because of anything we'd done, but because we'd stopped trying to pretend to be like the world and we stopped just trying to do the expressions of the past as well. We actually wanted to live authentically as Christians, as young people in our generation and a lot of other young people who were listening to Nirvana and Pantera and all those other bands in the 90s, they actually looked at us and went, wow, you guys are way more into what you're doing than what we're doing. And so I want to ask the question tonight, 
If soul revival was born countercultural, what is soul revival today? What are we today? Are we still countercultural? Well, I've talked to you a lot about what happened in the 60s and a little bit about what happened in soul revival in the early 90s, but now I want to get in the time machine and go back even further in history. And I want to go to the shores of Galilee and sit at the feet of Jesus himself, to the beginning of the Jesus movement. And I want to sit there and I want to listen to him speak to us today. And even though I'm speaking today, I want to tell you that I'm a listener as well as you. I don't think I've got all this right. I don't think I've got my head around all this and I don't think I'm living all this out particularly well. But I want to. And I know many of you tonight want to too. In Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Jesus made a contrast between his leadership and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of his time. And this is showing that Jesus was countercultural to his time. The religious leaders hated him and the political leaders hated him. Just like Larry was stuck between the old people and the young people of his generation, Jesus is stuck between the Jewish authorities and the Romans and he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven, however. And he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust and vermin destroy, where moths and... Yeah, <coughs> excuse me, where thieves break and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, on the surface, this is talking to us about the fact that Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that your new spiritual reality, if you follow me as a, as a member of this new kingdom, is that you're going to need to make a choice in your, the way you live. If you're going to be a member of my kingdom, I don't want you to store up treasures on earth and in, kingdom, in my kingdom. I don't want you to store up treasure in heaven, in, in, in the kingdom of God, and store up treasures on earth. I, I just want you to pick one. On the surface, that's what he's saying. But also what he's saying is that there's a permanence about his kingdom that surpasses the, any of the temporal kingdoms that we might be a part of. So if we might store up treasures on earth, it's usually to gain some kind of security. We might want to gather to ourselves a heap of friends at school so we feel secure. Because if we don't have friends, school's a hard place. And if, if you don't have friends around you, you could be like picked off like like a stray sheep with a broken leg. You know, when the wolves come and get the stray sheep, you need, a, you need a crew, right? But Jesus is saying, actually, you don't need a crew. You just need me. Some of us are thinking, you know, the world is financially such a chaotic place at the moment, we really got to make sure we've got our retirement savings sorted out. And it's a good thing to do that. But on the other end of the scale, when we're trying to get our security out of that, that actually is only temporal, it's not going to last. That's what Jesus is saying. But he's saying, if you store up treasures in heaven by following me and doing what I'm excited about and building wealth in the kingdom, that will never be taken away. Now, he's saying all that on the surface, but what he's also saying is he's contrasting himself with the religious leaders of his day who are actually calling themselves followers of God but are also building up treasure for themselves in this world. They love the praise of men. Everything they do, Jesus says in this passage, is for people to say, what a godly person you are. And unfortunately, we can be like Pharisees too. Sometimes we do ministry so that we can say we're important in the church or that we have a role in the church or we're accepted or, you know, how good am I as a Christian because I've got all this ministry. We can be like Pharisees too. But Jesus is saying, actually, no, don't store up treasure on earth, whether it be the goodwill of people or money, as was the case with the Pharisees. They were making heaps of bank out of the people of their time. They were rich as. Don't be like that. Be willing to be poor in this world to be rich in the kingdom of heaven. See, what Jesus is saying to us today is don't be a Pharisee. 
When we think about sitting there on the shore of Galilee, I'd love to get in a time machine, Stu, and come with you. Actually, we probably wouldn't, to be honest. When I think about it, I'd rather be in a coffee house in the 1970s. Because can you imagine God looking at you as he's speaking to you? The words of these passages, do not store up treasure on earth. Whoa, he's not only going to be looking at your face, he's going to be looking into your heart. And I think, I like to think to myself that I would be associating myself in these kind of stories with the disciples, that I'd be like one of the disciples sitting under Jesus' teaching. But what if I'm actually more like a Pharisee that day than a disciple? Because, you know, Jesus used to say to the Pharisees that they were like a brood of snakes. He was pretty full on. You know, this whole idea of Jesus meek and mild, he is meek, but I'll tell you what, he's not mild. I don't know where anyone gets that out of the Bible. Jesus goes on and says to us, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to go all out on? See, when he says build up treasure in heaven, that's what he's really saying. What are you going to go all out on? What's the most important thing to you? It's not a bad thing to have a car or a house or a job and all that kind of stuff. But what are you going to go all out on? What do you live for? Is it, is it pleasure? Is it experiences? Is it holidays? Is it friendship with people in the world? You'll know because they will be the things that will make you compromise your Christian walk. If you are going all out on treasure on this world, it'll be that you'll say, oh, I can't go to church regularly because I have this. Now, you might think that's a bit of a strong statement, but when you look into your own heart and think about it, there are things that creep in there and become more valuable to us than Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if that happens, you're not building up treasure, you're becoming a worldly Christian. A worldly Christian is someone who's trying to do both building treasure on earth and building treasure in heaven. And a worldly Christian is just a Pharisee because they're paying lip service to God so they can actually be as comfortable as they can in this world. Jesus, earlier in the passage, in chapter 5, verses 11 to 22, he says this, "'You've heard it said that people long ago, "'you shall not murder, and anyone who murders "'will be subject to judgment. "'But I tell you that anyone who is angry "'with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment.'" Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means you fool, is answerable to a court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Raka is a, a more uh, heated version of fool, but Jesus is saying even if you say someone, oh, you're an idiot, that, that would be the Australian version. Oh, you're such an idiot. Do, do you ever call someone an idiot just in passing? Well, there are some other expressions that Australians use that I'm not going to use. But do you ever find yourself calling someone an idiot? Oh, she's such an idiot. Do you know what Jesus says? If it, it's, not just, it's not just the people who murder people who, who are going to go to hell. It's the people who call other people, you idiot, and look down on them. Now, that's all of us. We all do that. And Jesus is really trying to get us to think here. He's saying, I, I can read your thoughts as well as just see what you say and what you do. What's the answer to that? If we're all prone to doing that, well, go back even earlier to Matthew 22 and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind and with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, what Jesus is saying is this. If you put me first and you trust me, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die for you. I'll take all the punishment for all the things that you do wrong and you don't have to pay for it yourself. 
So if you call someone an idiot, you don't have to go to hell. I'll go to hell. And what I mean by that is he'll go to the place of the dead. He'll go to Sheol so that he can take our place so that we don't have to be punished for our sin and go to hell. Jesus will die so that we can be forgiven. But if you're going to love God with all your heart and mind and soul, you're going to need me to teach you how to do that because you don't do it naturally. So I'm going to need to give you a new nature, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actually going to teach you how to love God and put him first and put other people before yourself. Do you know how you build treasure in heaven? It's in Matthew 22. You need to put God first and put other people second and put yourself third. Now, the reason I say that is not because I do it all the time. Like I said, I'm a listener here today too. But I love that. I love that. It's so simple and clear. Put God first and go all out for him. Now, if, if you get a really good investment opportunity, you may actually withdraw from other things to get that investment. Imagine thinking like that about the kingdom of heaven, putting all your resources into the kingdom of heaven. And if you think that's a hard thing to do, think about 21-year-old Stu who was standing there thinking he might go to Gaimia Baps because he didn't have any friends. I was thinking of myself. Now, I'm being too harsh on myself, but I was thinking about building treasure in heaven because I looked around and I said, I don't have any friends the same age as me, so how could I possibly grow as a Christian if I don't have any other friends the same age as me? This church has let me down because they haven't got a program that suits me and helps me at my stage and age to be able to be a fully growing Christian. And I can only really grow if I have five or six other mates who like surfing and football and, they, and we can all go and surf together and play football together and go to church together and we'll go to church on Sunday but then we'll have real community outside of that, you know, and we'll become really friends. That's the best way to grow as a Christian. That is not in the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible, anything like that. So when I was thinking like that, I'm just speaking of myself, I think I was trying to build treasure on earth as well as build treasure in heaven. I wanted to say to God, sure, I'll be a Christian, I'll go to church if you give me these earthly things that I want to be a Christian. Friends, my age. But if you don't give me friends my age, then I actually can tap out now, God, because it's too hard for me to come, isn't it? How how could you expect me to go to church if there's nobody in their 20s left at church? Well, Brad Ware was there, Monica was there, Tim was there, Fee was there. I didn't even know who they were. Sidey was just down the road at Caring Bar, he hadn't rocked up yet, Nikki was there. And there's some of these people are in the room, that's why I'm saying it. But I was thinking, they were invisible to me because they weren't like me. How could they help me? I was wanting to build treasure on earth. I was a Pharisee. I was saying, God, I will only serve you if it's easy and it suits me and I like it. And I don't know where the conviction came from, probably Larry and Petra and all the other bands that I used to listen to in the 80s, all the Christian stuff. But this thought came to me, It's not about you, Stuart, it's about God. What if I channel all that neediness I have to be supported and encouraged into action and activity? That would be the Jesus movement, wouldn't it? Wasn't the Jesus movement a bunch of hippies who were playing guitars going, you know what, Jesus is even more exciting than drugs. We sing songs about drugs at the moment, but if we stop singing songs about drugs and start singing songs about Jesus, we'll become the preachers of our generation. And that's why I read out that song to you, because it's beautiful. It might be super daggy now, but it's a beautiful song. And they were preachers. They were preaching to their friends. 
What's stopping you preaching to your friends, you young crew? Do you, do you need to wait for an imparmata from me to say, Vinny, you can preach the gospel to your friends? Are you waiting for that? You're not waiting for that. Vinny's just like, oh, I've got a few mates, I might see if some of them want to come to church. And then the ratbags came to church. And we're all like wishing he hadn't been preaching to his friends. <laughs> because now at every staff meeting on Fridays, we're talking about what a rowdy mob this, this mob is. And I'm super proud of them. And I'm not trying to guilt anyone who's not asking their friends, but it's pretty exciting when someone asks their friends and they're non-Christians and they come along and they go, wow, you Christians have got something better going on here. That's the Jesus movement. That's Solis in the 90s. That's, that's Jesus in throughout time. He says in verse 20, uh, 19 to 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and vermin and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break and steal. And our young people here who are sitting on this front row are not sitting up the back in, in, in you know, the car park waiting for this to be over so they can get a free feed and they're just playing handball. I'm just saying. I'm not saying you guys are perfect, particularly looking at you, Vin. <laughs> None of these people are any better than us. <laughs> They're not, are they? But, and all you young people who are scattered around the room, don't think you're not as good as these people, which are not up the front, but if you want to sneak up the front now and get extra brownie points, just come up the front. But I'm just saying, it stokes me when young people go, you know what, I don't care what I get in this world, I want to serve Jesus. Larry Norman is famous for another saying. He said, this place is not my home, I'm just passing through. The album that comes off is called In Another Land. We're just passing through. If we're waiting for a bus at a bus shelter, do we put up pictures and, and, and get a little pillow and a little towel and, you know, have a shower and clean our teeth and, you know, live, live in the bus shelter? Unfortunately, some people do live in bus shelters. But if you can help it, you don't live in a bus shelter. Why? Because a bus shelter is just there to wait for the bus. Jesus is saying... Heaven is our home. Why are you building treasure in bus shelters when you could be building treasure in heaven? How do you do it? Just come to church. If you can't think of anything else to do, just, just turn up. Because everybody's being at church is what grows a movement. Have you ever thought about that? One person standing at Guymer Anglican Church, no matter how convicted they were, is not that... Oh, it's cool, but it's not that big a deal... But all of a sudden, when 500 people are going to church and they're sitting outside the windows on chairs looking in, and people are like, how come 80% of these teenagers a year ago weren't Christians and now they are? How did that happen? Because a group of Christians decided to sit up the front. Is Jesus up the front in your life or is he at the back? Are you turning up with Jesus every day, let alone church? Are you turning up for him every day? Because he's calling you to turn up to apply, not just some of your life. Don't, you know, when we were growing up in the 80s, we used to think you go to church when you can, when you're not too busy, because church is on every week. So if you miss a week, it's not a big deal, right? That's not how Jesus works. He turns up every week. Jesus never has something more important on on a Saturday night than turning up the Solis every week. That's what he does. And if Jesus wants to turn up every week, we should be turning up every week, if we can. I'm not saying you have to come to this church. You can go to whatever church. But if we as Christians in Australia start turning up to church every week, we'll become a movement again. Because apparently 50% of Australians are Christians. Where are they on a Sunday? They're being Pharisees, most of them, because they're building treasure on earth and building treasure in heaven too. Jesus says, no, nah, I don't want to do that. 
Proverbs 23, 4 says, do not wear yourself out getting rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. And I don't think there's a better verse in the whole Bible to our generation than that one right at the moment. We are wearing ourselves out getting rich. We put so much energy and time into making money, getting our marks, getting our jobs, going to our dancing, going to our soccer, making sure we got a good job, we're turning up to work. We have no energy left. We don't have anything left. We put it all into getting rich in this world. And Jesus says every now and again, when a passage like this comes up, Stu, how much are you doing this for yourself? And how much are you doing this for me? How much are you living for me? Because Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. So if you're here tonight and you look around and there's not many people like you, Jeff doesn't see many people who've come from California today, I'm telling you now, sitting by himself there with all his friends. Look at him. His wife's over looking after a father over in California. He's thinking he wishes he was over there. But he's not by himself, is he? Because he has Jesus. And when Jesus reconciled him to himself, he also reconciled him to me. I'm not a great friend, but you don't become friends because you have something in common. You become friends in the church because Jesus has won you and called you a child of God. So we all have the status of being one big group of friends and this according to Jesus is our best friendship group that we have in our life the church but we're so busy wearing ourselves out getting rich that we forgot how cool it is to be together and to be there with Jesus what is soul revival now are we still a counterculture or are we Pharisees who are trying to live for the world as well as for Jesus in Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says, If you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. In that passage, he even goes further than in this passage from tonight. He says, If you want to be perfect, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Is he being literal? He might be. But it might not be just sell your physical possessions, it might be put up with the fact that you don't have any friends to be a Christian. Or put up with the fact that you have to hang out with a lot of old people or a lot of young people or a lot of smelly people or a lot of people who don't know the latest way to curl their hair or, the, or, or, or people who don't follow the right social media. Sell it. Don't worry about it. Give it up. Do, do we really need to play soccer, go swimming, go dancing and all the other things we do? Part-time jobs? Can I encourage you? Part-time jobs are great. But part-time jobs may not be turning you into people who actually learn young people. If you're getting a part-time job, think about this for your heart for a moment. Does your part-time job actually help you to learn the value of money and use it well, or is it turning you into a little consumer who spends too much? Because when you've got a lot of money, sometimes, like me, I tend to spend up to my man I get. We've got to be careful that we're not spending all our time getting rich. We need to build up treasure in heaven. What's wrong with being a youth leader or a kids leader instead of being someone who has a part-time job? By the way, before everyone thinks I'm saying this, I'm not saying you can't have a part-time job. No, I didn't say that. And if you do get a part-time job or have a part-time job, I know some of you have part-time jobs, it's cool with me. I'm just asking you to measure your heart according to Jesus and listen to him, not me. 
I'm just trying to apply it a little bit, that's all. I know I'm coming to the end. But when Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, he doesn't expect us to be perfect and never sin. But what he does say in this passage is the same thing he's saying in Matthew 22. Measure your heart. Do you put God first? Are you all in for God? Or are you just a bit in for God when you've got extra time? Because in my generation, as well as having a part-time job and going to uni, we would go to church when we had time. Then we would go to Bible study if we had time. Then we would be a youth leader if we had time for a couple of years. We wouldn't get too serious about it because then we'd give it to someone else to do it. But that day back at Glen Anglican Church, I'm really thankful that God just gave me a little bit of a glimpse of a bit of a conviction to say, you know what, God, I'm even willing to stay here in this boring church for the rest of my life because I just want to serve you and you happen to have put me here. Jesus is saying, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions. Archie Poulos uh, from Moore College once said to me, what if Jesus actually means what he says there? What if, what, instead of saying, does Jesus want me to sell everything and go follow him? Shouldn't the question be, what would happen if I did? Have you ever thought about that? What if you gave up everything for Jesus and went all in for him tonight? Maybe. Once at college, Archie said, what would stop you buying a, going to the airport today, buying a ticket on a plane to somewhere, getting on that plane and going and being a missionary there? What would stop you doing that? And the students in my class went, well, don't know if we'd have enough money, don't know if, we, if we'd get sick, don't know if we'd have a visa, don't know. And Archie's like, yeah, but what if you did? What if you did? And what I want to say is the exciting reality about Jesus' teaching is he's trying to free us from fear and he's freeing us from our own wisdom that gets in the way of true wisdom. I'm not trying to tell you, young crew, to go to the airport tonight and get on a plane. If any of you parents want to talk to me afterwards and think I haven't quite got this balance right, very happy to come and have a chat with me. But what would stop you going to live in Cambodia for Jesus? What would stop you moving to uh, another church for Jesus because they don't have any young people? What would stop 20 of us going on Friday night to run a youth group? Oh, actually, 20 of us already do go on Friday night to run a youth group. Oh, I wonder if any young people go on Friday night. Well, they didn't go on Friday night before 20 people went on Friday night. But now that 20 people go on Friday night, 100 people go on Friday night every week. Currently, at Yarrawarra, there are 18 Christians who are going to Yarrawarra every Sunday morning and there are 20 non-Christians coming almost every week and there's not enough Christians to look after them. What would stop 20 of us going to Yarrawarra for a while? Nothing, probably. But getting rich might stop us because we have too many other things to do. I don't know. Some people say the church asks too much. Church has got me going to church so much, I'll never have time for my friends. And then who'll, who'll tell people about Jesus if I go to church all the time? Well, the funny thing is, back in the 90s, we used to hang out on Wednesday night for a leaders meeting, Bible study Tuesday night, go to youth group on Friday night, go to Solis on Saturday night till two in the morning and go to church on Sunday night. I'm not, by the way, suggesting we're going to start doing that. All you young crew who are like, oh no. We did that because of the Jesus movement. Because they lived in communes and we weren't able to live in a commune so we did the very next best thing. Let's hang out heaps with people who are different and talk about what it means to be a Christian and ask people to come along. And it was only when we started putting Jesus first and did all that that the group grew. 
because people realised we weren't just like any other marketers who were trying to sell something. We were actually wanting to really love them. If you want to have a countercultural lifestyle, think about this just to finish. The last part of the passage is the eye of the lamp, uh, sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? Uh, this bounces straight off what Jesus was saying at the beginning of the passage. But here the eye is actually taking in what it likes, isn't it? We look at things we like. Clickbait is there because we go to things that take our interest. If the world is our clickbait, we won't grow our heart for God. And if all we do is look at the things in this world, we are not going to grow our heart. But if we study God's Word and we read it and we go to church and we talk about it and we live it, the eye will be like a lamp of your body and your whole body will shine with light. In fact, the Bible says here that Jesus says in verse 23, that is what it is to be healthy. But to be unhealthy is to look at things in this world. And the funny thing about these two words, healthy and unhealthy, here in verse 22 and 23, is they can also be translated as being generous to God or being stingy towards God. And that's what I want to leave you with. If you are all out for something, you'll be generous to that thing. If you are all out in your career at work, you will just do that and everything else will come second. If your friendship group is your God, then everything will be your friendship group, whatever that might be. But if God is everything... You'll be generous to that. You won't be waiting for someone to say, hey, can you help out at church? You'll be like, what can I do? How can I help? Do you know how cool it was? Last week we did a newsletter that went out and we said we needed some more cleaners. Five people, four people turned up last week to help clean. Three, okay, I'm exaggerating, I'm a youth minister. <laughs> Always count the youth leaders as well as the kids, probably hundreds, really 60 on Fridays. Um, they were cleaning the windows. That's unreal. We all appreciate clean windows, don't we? We had some brothers and sisters who rocked up just because we had a newsletter article. That's generous to God. But the real, if you, wanna, if you don't want to be a Pharisee and you don't want to be someone who is building up treasure on earth, the real simple test that I'm leaving you with is, think of it like this, don't be stingy to God. And that's a simple thing we can ask ourselves every day. Am I being generous to God today or am I being stingy today? Am I saying, God, you can have a little bit, but not everything? Are you the kind of person that when someone says, can I have a chip, you put your hand around the packet? You know those ones? Do they still do that at school? Can I have a chisel? Yeah, man. Or even worse, can I have a chisel? Yep, there you go. There's your chisel. That's stingy. Do you do that to God? Or if God says, can I have a chisel? You go, yeah, man, and hand the packet over. You might get one chisel back because he'll take them all. There'll be one left. And you'll go, God just took all my chisels. <laughs> and you look down and there's one chisel left. Actually, half a chisel. Actually, the worst is actually three quarters of a chisel. You know when you get that one? Three quarters of a chisel. But then you look down a second time and guess what? The pack's full again. And do you know what happens next? Someone else says, hey man, have you got a chisel? That's how the kingdom works. You give God all the chisels and you get one back. But then you turn around and Laurelie Breely says, can we go to go and hang out at Brewarna? And we, yeah, yeah, cool. She gave God all the chisels that weekend. 
Do you know what she drove home with? Yabbies. <laughs> That's the last thing I want to say. You might think that God will give you back cheesels. He'll give you back yabbies. They're even better than cheesels. Have you ever had a yabby from Bawarana? They're good, eh? I don't think anyone else ate them. That's why I said Laurelie, not the other rest of the family. Thanks for letting me go a bit longer tonight. I wanted to say some hard things, but I wanted to say it gently. And I wanted to say it slowly so I could listen to it as well as talk about it. Because I need to think about this a lot too. And I'd like you to pray for me and I'd like to pray for you. So let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, no one can have two masters. Either we will hate one and love the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve both you and money. Lord, in the quietness of this room and on the internet tonight, we pray, can you please teach us how to love you first and then love other people second? Can you help us to stop being stingy? We all are a bit stingy, Lord. Help us to be generous to you. And help us, Lord God, to find out how you want us all to individually do that too. Lord, we can't serve two masters. We want to serve you. We don't want to just go to church. We want to be devoted to you. And we want to give you all our chisels tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.